0: Galatians chapter 4, continuing in the How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense series. And the title of this message is Ishmael people and Isaac people. You probably have no idea what that means. I'm not sure I know, but we'll try to work our way through it. Uh, I just need to warn you that our text is interesting. Paul here is using a complicated and some would even say convoluted argument against his opponents here, okay? So he's dipping way back into some uh, biblical history. He's using it as an allegory, an illustration of some spiritual truths that are very meaningful for our lives, but it's somewhat of a complicated and removed sort of illustration and argument, but we'll try to work our way through it. Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom as we study your word today, and that you give us revelation, that you would reveal to us truth, and that truth would not only be revealed to us, but we would be changed by it. We want to be changed people, and so give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us hearts to respond. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and teach us. We realize that I'm I'm the instrument, but I don't want to be any more than that. I just want to be a tool in your hands. Holy Spirit, Jesus said, you are the teacher of all things. So come and teach us. Please anoint me to speak forth your truth and anoint us to hear it and respond to it and to be changed together as a community of faith and as individuals. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> right? Yeah. You've heard that. Yeah. God helps those who help themselves. Right? Haven't you heard that? Yeah. Is, is that true? No. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, that's not in the Bible. Your grandmama said that, yeah. right? When she's trying to get you to do something. But that's not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is another popular misconception of God and how he works among his people, okay? And we've already talked about several misunderstandings of God in this series. We talked about the misunderstanding of God as a negotiator, right? That we realize that we haven't quite measured up, but we're pretty confident that we can negotiate a deal with God, right? That he'll overlook our shortcomings and bless us. And we find ourselves doing this all the time right? God, I will try harder, do more, be better if you will. We do this as Christians because we have this false concept that God is a negotiator. The unregenerate think that. They think that they'll someday stand before God as judge and they'll say, well, I did these good things. I know I had those bad things, but I had some good things too. And they kind of outweigh the bad because popularly people think God's a negotiator. And even within Christianity, we deal with God as if he was a negotiator. That's a false concept of God. Another false concept of God that we've already spoken about is God as Santa Claus. Okay, this is popular in culture that, yeah, God doesn't like sin, but he's not overly concerned about it. He's kind of a grandfatherly figure like Santa Claus, who at the end of the day is going to bless me anyway. Because I'm as deserving as anybody else. After all, nobody's really gotten coal in their stocking from Santa Claus. Santa Claus always comes through with the good stuff. That's another misconception of God. Another one that we've talked about in this series is God as a cop. Okay, he's that cop who's in your rearview mirror and you're nervous and you can barely drive and you know he's looking to bust you and you're wondering if your registration is up to date. Did you fix the taillight? And did you renew your insurance? And do you even have your license? And all these things that go through your mind when you see that guy in your rearview mirror. And for some of us, God feels like that cop just always looking, waiting to just pounce on you. And you're trying to get your stuff in order. It's a misunderstanding of God. Another one that we talked about was God is boss, right? We've all had bosses where we realize that if we do our job and do it well and do it in a timely manner, he'll be cool with us. If we don't, he's going to be upset with us and we're in some sort of danger of losing something. A lot of Christians think that about God. Okay, I got to do A, B, C, and D. Okay, God, you're cool with me. Oh, I didn't do it. God's upset with me. All of these negotiator, Santa Claus, cop, emboss our misunderstandings of God. And now, in light of the popular saying, God helps those who help themselves, we recognize another misunderstanding of God, and that is God as collaborator. Collaborator. Okay, God, you do a little bit, I'll do a little bit. Because you help those who help themselves. So I'm hearing what you want to do, and I'll get her done. I'm an American. I'll I'll make it happen. I'll I'll get her done. Now, It is true in certain facets of life that God is a collaborator, right? There's certain things that God calls you to do where you're in partnership with God, right? We're co-laborers with God in mission, for example, right? Like when we went to start this church, like we had to do some stuff. It didn't just appear, you know what I mean? We had to like actually do some stuff. God's doing the work. It's like when Paul says, I've worked harder than anyone else in the ministry. Not yet, not I, but the grace of God in me. Um, You know, you had to pay your taxes on Friday, and as Christians, we think God provided, but he wasn't paying your taxes. You had to write the check and send it in. There's certain ways in which we're partnered with God in life. But not when it comes to salvation. And that's the issue at hand. And that is the folly in the error. And Paul would seem to say the horror of what the Galatians were believing. The yes, it's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, but I still need to do good things to be in God's good graces because God helps those who help themselves. He's a collaborator. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but here's what I'll bring to the table. Now, Paul's going to argue against that. He's been arguing against that in the whole book. We're not going to hear anything new with regards to that. We'll just hear it in a different way. And he's going to do it by going back to Abraham once again, right? The father of the faith. He's going to go back to Abraham and argue from some of Abraham's experiences that we have nothing to add to what God has done for us in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We start reading in verse 21. Paul, in arguing against him, says, Tell me, you who want to live under the law, Do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a, get this, human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as, get this, God's own fulfillment to his promise. Now here's what's going on. We know from the book of Genesis that Abraham didn't have any children. His wife was barren. He was 75 years old. This was a problem. He was lamenting to God that um, the, the, the children of my servants will be my heirs. I, I don't have any heirs. And in that culture, that was a heartbreaking thing, much as it even can be in our culture. And so he's lamenting to the Lord. And the Lord had a plan for Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I know you're 75 but I'm going to cause nations to come forth from you in a particular nation through which the savior of the world will come. And it says there that when when Abraham heard that from God at the age of 75, he believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So God said, I'll I'll give you children. And then 11 years went by. Okay, Abraham's not young, he's 75. Now he's 86. 86. And at 86, he's wondering, how is God going to fulfill his promise? Maybe God needs my help, right? Maybe God needs my help. And so I'm assuming he's discussing this with his wife, Sarah, who she's, she's barren and she's, um, she would have been 85 at the time and he's 86. And so Sarah came up with this idea and said, I know Abraham, why don't you have sex with my servant, Hagar? And Abraham did that. Gentlemen. This is one of those times where you do not listen to your wife. One of the rare moments in your life where you say, no, wife, I will not do what you're asking me to do. But Abraham did it. He had sex with her servant, Hagar, and they had a son. And the name of that son is Ishmael, Ishmael. So Ishmael is born. And we know from Genesis that that wasn't what God intended to do. You see, God did not want to be a collaborator with Abraham. God wanted to be a gracious giver for Abraham. And so God told Abraham, Abraham, that's not it. And then finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah is now 99, God miraculously causes her to get pregnant. You know it's a miracle when they're 199. Miraculously causes her to get pregnant and she has a son and the son is Isaac. So now... Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, verse 23 says, was a human attempt to bring about a fulfillment of God's promise, collaboration. Isaac, the latter part of verse 23 says, was God's own fulfillment to his promise, a gracious gift. Now the folly of the Galatians and what we often get trapped in is relying on our own efforts to relate to God rather than relying on God's efforts for us to bring us into relationship. In other words, I will be good so God will treat me good. Collaboration, own effort. That's folly according to the message of the cross. So Isaac then is the result of God's sovereign work Ishmael is a result of a false perception of God as collaborator. Isaac is totally God's doing. Ishmael is Abraham's doing. Isaac was a gift of grace. Ishmael is a proverbial work of the flesh. And so what Paul's trying to tease out here is the contrast between self-reliance and God-reliance, okay? When it comes to our relational standing with him. And so then Ishmael and Isaac come to represent two different ways of relating to God. The Ishmael way and the Isaac way, the way of the law and the way of grace, the way of the flesh, the way of the spirit, the way of seeing God falsely as a collaborator and the way of seeing God rightly as a sovereign, gracious giver. Now what Paul's going to do is talk about their moms a little bit, Hagar and Sarah, as illustrations of the two primary covenants in Scripture, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. The covenant of law we've been saved from, the covenant of grace we've been saved by. Now he has this illustration from the moms, Hagar and Sarah, starting in verse 24. He says, These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman Hagar represents Mount Sinai where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman Sarah represents a heavenly Jerusalem. She's a free woman and she's our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you you who have never given birth, break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor, for the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. Okay, here's what's going on. He brings up Hagar, right? The slave that Abraham had Ishmael with. And he says that Hagar the slave is representative of a type of, an illustration of Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? God gave the law to Moses and Moses gave the law to the people and the people were to obey the law. So Hagar the slave is a picture of Mount Sinai, which is a picture of the covenant of the law, works. Anything you're gonna get from God, you have to earn, which is a picture, he says, of Jerusalem, the old way of relating to God, according to merit or demerit, which he says connotes slavery so hagar is a picture of mount sinai which is a picture of the covenant of the law the old covenant which is a picture of jerusalem and religion that is enslaved by the law and that all means slavery in juxtaposition to that we have sarah who is the free woman who represents the covenant of grace by which we are saved who represents the new Jerusalem, which is not only an eschatological or future reality, but a present reality of our dwelling with God through our being united with Christ. And this, he says, speaks of, represents, illustrates freedom, Christian freedom, that we have been set free from having to perform well according to the law to be accepted by God. And we are now accepted by God's own fulfillment of his promise in the person of Jesus Christ, dying in our place on the cross and rising to new life to give us brand new life and to bring us into a love affair. A love affair with God by which we are free to enjoy God. So then he's teasing out this idea that there are two ways to relate to God. The path represented by Hagar that we just spoke of or the path represented by Sarah. And so, correspondingly, there's two sorts of people. There are the children of Hagar, Ishmael people, and there are the children of Sarah, Isaac people. And Christians, by definition, are supposed to be Isaac people, children of Sarah, children of the free woman, because we have received God's promise of salvation through God's work. God's own fulfillment of his promise. And the problem that's being addressed here in the text, and that's very poignant to our lives, is this that we have a tendency to fall back into Ishmael religion instead of Isaac sort of relating to God. We know that we've been saved by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ did, and it's not a work of ourselves. We know we've been saved that way but then we have this feeling that. but now I gotta be good. Remember we, we, we talked about that recently that that's not true. It's not that salvation just gives you a blank slate and now you gotta fill it up with good things. No, it, it, it removes all of the sin and it gives us perfect righteousness. We have both redemption, freedom from the liability of sin and adoption brought into right and good and loving standing before God so that we are both innocent even though we're guilty and treated excellent even though we're undeserving. But the problem is that we fall back in trying to relate to God through good behavior. If I do good, God will be nice. If I don't, he won't. That is a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. And that, verse 24 says, is enslavement. And it's just a tragedy, to have been set free by the cross of Jesus Christ and be enslaved again. The list of do's and don'ts that the law was, 613 of them became pure slavery for Israel. And so correspondingly, anyone who reduces Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts is a slave, a son of Hagar, Ishmael religion. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you're feeling that as a Christian, I I need to do better, be better, try harder to make God happy with me. Unless you get free of that by realizing the gospel that it's all been done for you. And because you're identified with Christ, God loves you like he loves his son, Jesus Christ. And accepts you in the same way. Unless you you, you get a hold of that, you will always be enslaved. Here's a disconnect. You think that if you do better, do better, do better, there's going to come some point of freedom. That's not how slavery works. No matter how good of a slave a slave is, they're not set free by being a good slave. It's not like a promotion in the workplace, right? In fact, if you're a good slave, you just have more slavery to do. There's not ever a promotion out of slavery, And so you're thinking, I'm going to get to this place where I'm good enough to be free to enjoy God. You will never get there. If you're trying to relate to God like Ishmael, you will always be enslaved because there's no escape from slavery through the route of slavery. We're only brought out of slavery by being bought out of slavery. It's called redemption. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us and our adoption. That we were once slaves, now we're sons. See, no matter how good you do, God is never going to be in debt to you. You got nothing to bring to the table to negotiate. God is never going to be in debt to you, no matter how well we perform. And so, trying to relate to God in that Ishmael sort of way is the most ruthless of slavery. There's no end to it, there's no thank you at the end of the day, there's no promotion. There's no satisfaction. We've been saved from that. We've been brought out of spiritual slavery into spiritual freedom. Now, there is then in the church always these two people. There are Ishmael people and Isaac people. Always in the church. There are Christians who are not yet living under grace, still feeling the need to perform, and there are those who are living in freedom and under grace. And what Paul's gonna tease out next from the historical context is that these two have a hard time getting along, okay? Verse 29, he says to them, but you are now being persecuted by the, we should read verse 28, and you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. Now, verse 29, but you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born of human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born of the power of the spirit. So he's referencing this time when Isaac was being weaned. Okay, Isaac would have been about three years old and Ishmael would have been uh, somewhere in his late teens at this time. And Ishmael was deriding, mocking, making fun of, dissing Isaac. Okay, there was some thing going on where he didn't like Isaac. Isaac was a son of promise. He was a work of the flesh. Isaac was a free child. He was a slave. So he's openly mocking, coming against Isaac. We see that in Genesis 21. What's interesting is that the Bible seems to say that the the older brother is always going to have a problem with the free younger brother. The story of the prodigal. It, It was a younger brother who sinned against the father, said, give me my inheritance, and went out and spent it on prostitution and drunkenness and loose living and squandered his father's estate, came crawling back to his father and his father runs to him, falls upon his neck, and in the Greek, kisses him over and over and over again, puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, sandals on his feet, and kills a fatted calf to have a huge party for this horribly performing son. And the older brother doesn't like it. The older brother comes toward the end of the story and says, this kid is horrible, dad. This kid took his inheritance. He took your estate and he, went and he squandered it on prostitutes. And drunkenness. And I've been here. I've done everything you asked me to do. I've always been with you. I've always behaved. Why does he get a party? Why is he being treated well? Why does he have a robe and a ring and sandals? And the only possible illusion there could be that the father does not intend to deal with you according to your failures, but according to his love and his mercy. But those who insist on being ranked according to performance, those who must be identified as good Christians, will always be upset with the little brothers. Ishmael will always come against Isaac. In Luke 18, then Jesus told this story to some who had great... Listen, just listen... Jesus told the story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He said, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this way. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a 10th of all my income. He really did perform exemplary. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you this, that this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home Justified before God in right standing with God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Ishmael people will always come against Isaac people because they have not realized the fullness of the truth of the gospel, the degree to which we are accepted because of what Christ did in our stead on the cross. And so not, not then realizing that, not sensing and laying hold of our redemption and our adoption and our acceptance, we insist upon being recognized for our efforts. Just like the older brother and the, and the prodigal, I, I've, I've done everything right just like the Pharisee, I I do everything right. If you fail to recognize and lay hold of the truth of the gospel, you will be trapped in a need to do everything right. And, And the reason that those of you that are like that persecute the Isaacs is because you demand to be recognized. Because human effort always wants to be recognized. So much so that Abraham in Genesis 17, after he had Ishmael, came to the Lord and said, Lord, oh, that Ishmael may live before thee. In other words, isn't Ishmael good enough? Lord, look what I did. We collaborated here. You said I'd be the father of a nation of many nations. I got it done. I made it happen. What are you going to do with this? I'm doing good stuff here. Human effort always wants to be recognized. And so if you fail to ground your identity and your security and your sense of love and self-worth and the love of God for you and the work of Christ for you, you'll demand to be recognized by people and hopefully by God and you'll always fall back on needing to perform. You need to perform because you don't know how to locate yourself otherwise. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 just pulls the rug out from underneath you. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. That's true of initial salvation and that's true of the continuance of salvation. That there can be no boasting within the Christian community. There's no good Christian, bad Christian. I'm doing well, you're doing poorly. I'm better than you. The whole book of Galatians is to come against the horror of that. And the remedy is to realize the ultimate gift of grace that's been given us in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, then we we, we perceive ourselves differently and we relate to other people differently. This has tremendous relational implications, okay? And, And it's in our relationships, and I've been so convicted by this this week, okay? I've been busted, It's in our relationships where we can begin to sort of measure, determine, see, get a glimpse of whether or not we're experiencing living under this grace of God. It's in our relationships. For example, you know that you're living under grace when the criticism of people no longer wrecks you. You're living under grace. You've accepted the grace of God. It's enough for you that the God of the universe loves you radically. It's enough for me. You know you're living under grace. You get the gospel when the criticism of people doesn't wreck you anymore. Your dad criticized you. Your boss criticized you. Your spouse criticizes you. It's been destructive your whole life, but you've been set free. You're not a child of Hagar. You're a child of Sarah, of the free woman. You know you're living under grace when you're okay with being second or third or fourth or last or passed over altogether, you weren't the guy that had the recognition, you didn't get the preference, you didn't get the promotion. You see, if, if you're functioning as an Ishmael, as a son of Hagar, then those things kill you when you're not first, when you're not the one who gets a preference, the position. The promotion, it kills you. Because for you, you're still trying to locate everything according to performance. Your God is approval from other people. And so when you don't have it, it wrecks you. When you, when, when you get the gospel and you realize that you have the approval of God, 100% amazing world creating approval of God through Jesus Christ. You don't need to be first all the time. The gospel enables us to lose, to be passed over, to miss out, and still be okay because of God's love. Ishmael people will always come against the Isaac people. And so here's what Paul says to do in verse 30. What do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance of the free woman. Get rid of the Ishmael religion oriented people in your midst. That's gnarly. So like, we're just going to start kicking out legalists. We're just going to do it. We're going to take a survey right now. And if you're an Ishmael, we're going to kick your butt out. We're not as much as we'd like to. We'll take a more humble approach. And and we'll start by casting the Ishmael tendencies out of our own hearts. Okay, let's start with us. With ourselves. Let's start by casting the Ishmael and slave tendencies out of our own hearts. That we stop saying, Oh Lord, that Ishmael may live before thee. We, We stop seeing God as a collaborator. We have something to bring to the table. And we start relying fully upon God and what He's done for us in Christ for our standing before Him. Because verse 31 says, Dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Now, having said that, if you have an intense desire to do right, to do good, to honor God through and in your behavior, and if your motivation is from a place of deep gratitude because you know you've been accepted, and deep love because you know you are deeply loved, then that is good, that is right, and that ought to be. The love of God that we experience in Christ should give us a deep desire to do right, to do good, to honor God in and through our behavior. The law will never provide that. The rules cannot do that for you. Love is always more powerful than the rules. You see, like, I'm a mama's boy. I've always been a mama's boy. I'm 39 years old. And one of the major goals of my life is to please my mom. I don't have to please my mom. My mom is the most beautiful representation of God of anyone I've ever known, just incredible grace and accepting love in the face of horrific rebellion and sin. That's my life story. My mom's taught me more about Jesus Christ than anybody else. And so because she has loved me so unconditionally and so relentlessly through my life, I have this intense desire to do things that make her happy. I don't have to do it. I'm not enslaved to do that. I love to do that. I love to do that. I drive by her house and say, Mom, what can I do for you? I love to do that. It's the same with my wife. Because I'm in a love affair with my wife, I have an intense desire to be a good man. I want to do right. I want to do good. I want to honor my wife in and through my obedience. Not because I have to, because I'm in love with a chick. (laughs) And I think about my kids. Think about the way my kids love me think about the way my kids at the end of the day come running to the door screaming daddy jump into my arms and they never miss it. they're usually actually out in the street waiting I think about that and it makes me want to be a good man because of how much they love me even when nobody's looking I want to do what's right and that's the way it's meant to be with God that we have this deep desire because of how we've been loved and being totally accepted to honor him in the way that we live. Those who fail to recognize that and make performance the principle of their lives will always be slaves. You need to break free from that. Your culture has formed that in you. You need to break free from that by hearing the gospel. And when you make grace the principle of your life, you will always be free. And then you'll, you'll start to get what St. Augustine said so many years ago. He said this, love God and do what you want to do. Love God and do what you like. You see, if you love God, it's going to radically affect what you want to do. Lord, we thank you once again for these great truths. And we ask you once again to work them deep in us. We pray as we often pray the Holy Spirit, you'd come now in these moments of worship and reflection and pour the love of the Father out in our hearts. Lavish your grace upon us, God. Speak to us your words of love and Spirit manifests the loving presence of God. We realize that it's only through repentance and faith in what Christ has done for us that we are extremely wicked more than we realize. But Christ was brutally slain in our place. And so now we are perfectly loved and brought to the face of God. Show us your face, Lord. Communion is up here to celebrate and remember the cross and come and get on the carpets and experience God in that way. Prayer team will be up at the front as well if you need help with anything. Mm -hmm.